Now we come on to a topic which is pretty um, interesting in the fact that I've never actually heard this preached, I don't think ever, I'm not saying it's never been preached, but I've never heard one. It's about, uh, as you know, we do a lot of gospel preaching in the streets, and most times we get rather impolitely told to go away. We won't go into exactly what they say, um, but it's uh, not normally a good reception. And, but now and again you get someone who might say, well, what happens to those people who haven't heard the gospel? Which is a fair enough point, really, isn't it? Does God just strike them down dead because they've not had the chance, the opportunity to hear it? Um, so, you know, let's have a closer look then of what happens to those who haven't heard the gospel. And I'm going to go also before the cross, in obviously the Old Testament, and obviously after the cross, the New Testament. Um, and I'm, we're not really referring to those people who have got the wrong Jesus, and you know we're not talking about the JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the um, who um, who they think Jesus is the Michael Archangel. We know Michael Archangel can't save you at all. And we're not talking about um, uh, the Mormons or the Seventh Day Adventists or the Roman Catholic Church with all their works-related um, religion. Um, but we're thinking of possibly, you know, the um, isolated tribesmen in Africa or the, you know, the middle of the Brazilian rainforest or the Aborigine or the Eskimo or the Chinaman, all those sort of type people. Anywhere the, uh, where the G gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't been heard. Obviously, there are millions who have never heard the gospel before the coming of Christ. So, so how, were they, how were they saved? Or how were they condemned? It's been 2,000 years, as we know, since Christ, and obviously millions of, uh, or billions of people who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what happens? What actually happens? Well, I'm not going to give you my opinion, because my opinion probably isn't worth much, but I'm going to tell you, uh, after gleaning through God's word, of, of what he says, and obviously he's the one that counts, isn't it? Uh, as I say, mostly we get a normally a, 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 um, a negative response in the, uh, uh, in the streets. But, but it's interesting to find out exactly what happens. Right, let's start in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Start right back at the beginning. Um, right back at the beginning, where often God made covenants with men. And, uh, and, uh, and a certain amount of obedience was required by God. In other words, their behaviour and works was needed by man to satisfy good. Let's look right at the very start. You can't get further back than Adam and Eve, can you? Can't get further back than them. So let's have a quick scan to see how they happened. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 28, God gave Adam dominion over the earth. It says that in Genesis and also is affirmed in Psalm 8, verse 6. Well, that he actually gave dominion to Adam and he chose the animals' names and everything else. And, um, and all Adam had to do, or should I say was not do, was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know what's happened after that, don't we? We're all paying the price for that now. Adam and Eve sinned, as we all know, just to speed things up, and hid from God. They were ashamed. They had disobeyed God. They ate from that tree. And they were shamed, and they could not face God. Really, it's a similar position now where people can't face God uh, because uh, perhaps they've sinned and they can't face him. So many people, even now, are ashamed and hiding from God. 
And in verse 9, the Lord God went looking for Adam and Eve. He went looking for them. He said, where are you? He knew exactly where they were, but they was hiding. The same thing is happening today when you think about it, that God is looking for those who are hiding and can't face God. Some through fear. Some people prefer to remain in their sin and not come to the light. Some people think, well, I, you know, if there's a God, I'm, I don't want to know because I'm enjoying my sin so much, I don't want to leave it. Other people might want to search for God. Um, but it's also interesting that Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness, or sin, shall we say, by aprons of fig leaves, going right back to the beginning. And this is a picture of man's useless and pathetic way of their works. And obviously God wasn't accepting that. It's also interesting to note that Adam's feeble response to God, blaming everybody but himself, it's typical of man this is, he said, it was the woman that you gave me. Typical, isn't it? It was the woman that you gave. He blamed everybody apart from himself. It was God's fault. It was the woman's fault. It was the woman that you gave me. You can almost hear man saying that now, can't you? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a, a childlike thing, isn't it? It wasn't him, mum. He made me do it. <laughs> right. And um, so typical of man. But in verse 21, God provided coats of skins and clothed them, killed an animal. We don't know what animal it was. It could have been a lamb. We don't know, but it could well have been a lamb. And notice that God provided the sacrifice to cover their sin and their shame. So really, God has provided the first sacrifice, and really, when you think about it, he's provided the last one as well, hasn't he? Jesus often says, I am the first or the last. He could have been one of the many reasons why he's... Uh, there's many more reasons for that, but that is one. That is the first sacrifice and is the last sacrifice. Moving on to their sons, Cain and Abel. Try to keep it brief, give you a quick summary. Um, as a keeper of sheep, Abel brought God an animal sacrifice and Cain brought an offering of the first fruit of the ground, which is another picture of man's work where God demands a sacrifice. Where Abel's was a blood sacrifice, the best of his crop, the first of his crop, uh, sorry, of, of his flock, should, should I say. Um, and Abel's was accepted by God. Cain's wasn't, because it is of the land, it is of his works, not a sacrifice. And in Hebrews 11.4 states that by faith, Abel was righteous. That is it. Note that's all he did. We'll touch on Hebrews 11 a bit later, but Abel was counted righteous by God, is in the hall of fame in the Hebrews 11. All he done was provide God the right sacrifice, and he comes under that banner. There's a little clue there. Provide you've got the right fat sacrifice, you're acceptable by God. But to keep it brief, up until the time of Noah, it reads in Genesis 6, this is the wickedness of man. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually, continually. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, 
The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. Through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And in verse 14, God instructs Noah to make an ark. I'm sure we all know the story of that. Uh, We can see in Hebrews 11 that by faith, Noah believed God and made an ark. And in Genesis 7, 1, God told Noah and his whole house, notice that, his whole house, to come into the ark as he had seen righteousness in this generation. Uh, Noah puts his faith to work by being obedient. And bear in mind, it was just eight that was saved, just eight. And just to give you a mathematical thought, um, the mathematicians worked out that roughly all the generations that could have been around at that time could have been about three quarters of a billion people. Now, and other people, other scholars, also mathematically minded, thinking it's much more than that because the ages were much older. They lived a long, long, long time in those days. So it could have been up to four billion, so the mathematicians say. Anyway, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be too dogmatic on that, but it's going to be a lot of people. But just eight were saved because of righteousness. Moving on, in Hebrews 11, um, I have preached many a time on Abraham and how that he believed God in Genesis 15, 6, and God counted it to him for righteousness. See, once again, the simplicity of that. Abraham believed God and he counted it for him to righteousness. And Hebrews 11, 8 states how Abraham put his faith into action and obeyed. Uh, And obviously, as we know, he took Isaac up to sacrifice him and and, uh, God stopped him and said that God himself will provide a sacrifice. Really, it's really him, wasn't it? Uh, Bearing in mind, although Adam obeyed God, he had already been declared righteous many years before that, as I said, back in Genesis 15, 6. And in verse 11, Sarah Uh, judged God faithful who had promised her to conceive despite her age a miraculous conception obviously we can see there that sort of uh, rings a bell with uh, Mary doesn't it you know the the Bethlehem story Um, right jumping down to 31 because I say I can't read all the verse purely because of uh, uh, time verse 31 states that Rahab Another one, Rahab the prostitute, did not perish as we can see in Joshua 2, verses 9 and 11, verses 9 to 11. She acknowledged the Lord God and she was told to um, hang a red thread in the window. I don't know if you know in the story of that about Rahab, um, but that's all she did. She acknowledged the Lord God and uh, she was told uh, to hang a red thread in the window. Uh, and all her household would have been saved. It's rather reminiscent of the blood of the lintels and doorposts in Exodus 12, really, isn't it? The red at the window this time. Thereafter, God made a covenant with man, with Moses, being, and, and Moses being uh, man's representative. That was in Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments, as I'm sure we know, were given. And obviously there, it was strict obedience to God's commandments. It was the basis of the covenant. And obviously blood, it was, the covenant was started with a blood sacrifice. Also, I must give Lot a quick mention. He was declared righteous in 2 Peter 
2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Uh, it says in there that he was oppressed and tormented by the, the, the sin going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. We know all about that. Uh, but, but Lot was declared righteous despite the goings-on in Genesis 19 with his daughters. We won't go into that today because it's before 9 o'clock watershed. <laughs> um, right, moving on down to the New Testament... New Testament, um, I don't know if you want to turn to this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And God gives a, uh, Paul um, uh, an insight inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul actually was to write this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In fact, it does continue a bit before 18, but I've just got to shorten it a little bit just for time. Uh, right. Verse 18 in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. So he's quite clear there, God. I mean, I didn't write this. But God says that when you see the, the creation, when you see nature, there's so many symbols and picture of God's handiwork. For the invisible of things, in, this is in verse 20, for the invisible uh, things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, um, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. According to God's word, that mankind, when he sees uh, the nature and everything in the creation of the Lord, man is out without excuse. That's God's words, not mine. I'm just quoting you God's words. Without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, was darkened. And it says here that, that when it implies that they knew God, they knew God was there, they knew God, uh, they glorified him not as God. They didn't come to God. They didn't praise him and thank him for the creation. Uh, but their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And obviously, Psalm 14, verse 1 confirms that. The fool in his heart says there's no God. Psalm 14, 1. It carries on to say in verse 24, the 26, to say that God gave them up, literally gave them up. Um, they were without excuse. Uh, and verse 28 tells us that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. See, the see, names retain, see. They might have had some knowledge of God, but they didn't want to retain it. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. And God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Literally, God gave them over, gave them up. God washed his hands for them, as we'd probably say in this, in this age. Verse 29 and 31 lists all the evil thoughts and wicked behaviour of such people. Verse 32 saying... In the judgment of God, they are worthy of death. Worthy of death. Harsh words, but God will not 
um, be mocked. They are worthy of death. Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. It talks about God's handiwork as proof. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. God is clearly saying that man should be able to see there's a God by all the handiwork, by the heavens and the earth. When you look up from the stars, They've got to come from somewhere. They didn't come from some stupid big bang like we've been told by many a, um, an incompetent person. Choosing my words carefully. <laughs> um, and shows, it shows the handiwork of God. God says, if you look at the stars, the earth, nature, there must be a God. There is no excuse. As God says, there is no excuse. Psalm 8 verse 3 don't have to turn into it, I'll just read it out. Shows the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. They are clearly saying that God's handiwork is the moon and the stars and everything up there, everything you can see on a clear night. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. It says, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who created these things? That brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names. I've often said that. I don't know if you've ever heard me, but I often said that God knows every name of all the stars. That's one of the verses where it says it. Knows every hair on your head, everything. What an awesome God he is. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he that is strong in power, not one fails. There is no excuse according to God. Just to paint a bit of a picture... When you're sort of uh, looking up, you know, you might you obviously see the sun. And I think God obviously gives lots of little illustrations of the Lord Jesus just by some of the pictures in, in nature. I'm going to give you a couple of ones just to give you a bit of an inkling. Now, it might get hard to get your head around it, but a lot of uh, biblical people uh, think that the sun, the actual sun, the yellow thing in the sky, S-U-N, not S-O-N, that... <clears throat> It's a, when the sunset comes, often goes red in the evening, doesn't it? When, it? when it sunsets. And often it's like a picture of Christ's death, the sunset. And the sunrise in the morning is a picture of the resurrection. Now, think what it would be like if we went to bed some night knowing that the sun would not rise again. Next morning, just think what it would be. Think of the coldness, the unending darkness of the presence of death that would gradually move across the earth. It'd almost be like hell, wouldn't it, if the sun never didn't come back up again. All the plants and trees would soon die, and all life would perish. Perish. Where have we heard that word for? John 3.16. Oh, it all would perish for lack of sunlight without the life of the sun. But praise God, the sun does rise each day. Its warm, life-giving light floods the earth. The picture of death of a sunset each day is followed by the life-giving resurrection of a sunrise. The next day, life is renewed. Which reminds me of a verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 4.16, when life is renewed. It says that the inward man is renewed day by day. That's not your flesh, that's the inner man that God puts in there. God puts his seed of God up. When you believe in Jesus, he puts the seed of God and you're, he now have an inner man. 
And that inner man is perfect. Paul in verse, uh, Romans uh, 7 says, I do lots of things I shouldn't do, but I still do it. But my inner man, in verse 22, my inner man, <coughs> I rejoice in my inner man. I rejoice in the in, my inner man. And uh, talking about life, 1 John 5.11, we know that Jesus is that life. He's almost like the sun, S-O-N, in this case, capital S, S-O-N. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his son, 1 John 5.11. That This life is in his son. The son <coughs> gives life to the earth, and the son, capital S-O-N, gives life to us. What other things in nature can picture Christ? The sun and the moon. The sun and the moon. A picture of the bridegroom and the church. You might think my stretching is too far, but there's verses in the Bible to show this. The sun, uh, the bridegroom is obviously a picture of uh, Jesus, um, and the church, which is the bride of Christ, which would be us one day. The moon has no light of its own. It's a very good illustration of Jesus. Uh, it reflects the light of the sun. Now, we, as Jesus is now in heaven, he is the light of the world. You know, John 8, 12, it is, I think it is. Uh, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. But now Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven now. And he leaves us, his church, his saints, to be that light. It says it in Matthew five fourteen. You are the light of the world. Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 60, verse 3. And the Gentiles, that fits us nicely, and the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the bright, brightness of your rising. Remember, we spoke about the rising of the sun. Uh, it will come to the brightness of your rising. <clears throat> Both Christ and the sun are rising. Matthew 13, verse 43 then shall the righteousness shine forth as the sun. There we go, see? There's verses here. Then shall the righteousness shine forth as the sun. This is God's word in Matthew 13, 43. The church basically is believers who will shine as the sun. Now the moon is reflecting um, uh, the light of the sun, as we know, when the, when the uh, sun goes down, you often see the moon out on a clear night, doesn't it? It has no light of its own, but it's reflected from, it gets its light from the sun. Now, the moon has spots on it. If you look on it, it's got craters, isn't it, and spots. It's a bit like us, really. We, we've got, although we're now in Christ and we shine Christ, uh, the light of Christ, we have got on our flesh a few craters and a few uh, marks and uh, stains of the old sin nature that we've had before we was born again. Unfortunately, we have to drag our flesh around until it gets six feet under, until God calls us home and, um, and he gives us a new body one day. Now that's a picture of the bridegroom. And once again, back to uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, it says in verse 1. And verse 4 and 5, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. I in... In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. There we go. For the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. For his bride, obviously. And there he is. See, uh, everything is scriptural. 
It is uh, in them he has set a tabernacle for the son, which is like a bridegroom. Jesus being that bridegroom, picture of the sun there. And, uh, and obviously when the sun's not there, the moon is left to shine the light. <clears throat> right, what other things can be uh, thought of? I thought it was a nice little one. Um, what about the butterfly? It sounds like an education there, so I hope you're taking notes. I shall ask questions later on. The butterfly. It starts off in life as a caterpillar, as I'm sure most of us know. It's almost like a garden pest. It will happily munch through your vegetables in the garden. And it's ugly and it's annoying. <laughs> I'm not going to mention your name. Ugly and annoying. Now, as Paul says in Philippians 3.21... Jesus will change our vile body, as it says in the King James. In other translations, I think it says lowly body. Jesus will change our vile body that it may be fashioned or conformed to his glorious body. So just like his resurrected body. So one day, as I said, we are going to um, pass away. God's going to call us home one day and we're going to be buried six foot under. But one day God has promised he's going to give us a resurrected body just like Jesus And Jesus could pass through walls. When all the doors and windows were closed, Jesus could pass through and entered into the room. So you're going to have a body one day, just like like Jesus' resurrected body. Now, back to the caterpillar. The caterpillar will finish its life as a caterpillar and end up in a type of tomb. A bit like a... It's it's called a a cocoon, I think, or uh, something like that, a cocoon. And it will stay in that state for some time and then appear into this beautiful new creation new creation having a glorious body unlike its previous vile body and I, but of course the butterfly will die one day it's just a nice illustration that resurrected life all the dna is in that caterpillar the caterpillar sort of appears to sort of die but it comes back into a beautiful and it's a glorious picture of also jesus's resurrection that he, he was like buried in the tomb, or type of cocoon, if you like, and he come out on the third day to life. Praise God. What a glorious God we have. Right, if you'd like to turn to Romans 2, while I have a quick guzzle of my water, Romans chapter 2. Right, are you all there? Right, I'm going to jump in, although you, it's quite good to read the whole thing, but I'm going to start at verse 11. Verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. In other words, he treats them all the same. There is no respect of persons with God. For as many have sinned without the law, shall also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law, shall be judged by the law. Obviously, Gentiles didn't get the law. Israel got the law. But we are shown the law to see how far we've fallen short. And when you see the law, you've fallen well short. And that's when you call out for a saviour. Galatians chapter 3. Check that out. Right, we're still in Romans 2, but verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are, are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Once again, Israel there. Now, verse 14 talks about the Gentiles. Verse 14. For the Gentiles which have not the law. There we go. God's affirming that we have not the law. Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law. 
These having not the law are law unto themselves. Right, listen to this. This is where we're going. Verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them themselves. And God shall judge the secrets of man, uh, men by Jesus Christ, by my gospel. So there we can see, just go, going back to verse 15 here, the work of the law written in their hearts. God is saying that all men basically know what right and wrong is. You know, you might not have, you could not name all ten laws of the Mosaic law, um, but you do have a good idea of most of them, of what, what is wrong and what is uh, what, and what is uh, completely uh, wrong? What is right and what is wrong? Their conscience, here we go, their conscience also bearing them witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Right, so really, your conscience is going to be your judge. It's going to be your witness. When God brings you up, uh, obviously, hopefully everyone here is in Christ, but for anyone who isn't in Christ, God will judge them by their conscience, their conscience being a witness to what they have done. Now, the conscience is mentioned four times in 1 Timothy, three times in 1 Peter. Um, so basically, God is saying that with a conscience, man has enough. He has the nature, he can see the creation of the earth, and uh, he has a conscience, he has a conscience. Now, everybody basically knows what's right and wrong. You might not know every uh, of the Ten Commandments, but you'll basically have a right conscience level of what is right and what is wrong. It's a bit like um, if you was out shopping one day and you went back home and there was a thief in your house, he'd broken into your house, he wouldn't just say, oh, hi, I'll, I'll go and put the kettle on. He will run out the back door as fast as he can. He knows he shouldn't be there. His conscience will tell him that he shouldn't be there. He wouldn't turn around and say, let's put the kettle on and have a cuppa and have a chat. He would be out that door like a greyhound. Now, if a man was breaking into a car and he saw a policeman come along, he wouldn't say to him, do you fancy a spin around the block? He would run, wouldn't he? He would run. He knows what's right and wrong. He knows. He knows. His conscience will tell him. He knows. Man knows what is wrong. And that's only one verse, but if you could turn to it, in, while we're in Romans, the previous chapter, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Give it a couple of seconds. It's only the one verse I'm going to read, but it's, but it's key. <clears throat> Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now, when you come born again, the Holy Spirit will move into you. He will seal you. He will give you God's seal and your conscience bearing me witness. Can you see the same thing there? There's a sinner there in Romans 2.15. Their conscience bearing them witness and between themselves his thoughts accusing or excusing them. And God shall judge the secrets of men. And here we see a positive way of the conscience when when you're saved Romans 9 1 I say the truth in Christ I lie not my conscience 
also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Obviously, when you come born again, your conscience is even more sensitive. It's more sensitised. Um, when you, you, you're much more receptive, or you should be, when the Holy Spirit is telling you. You might think, actually, uh, I used to swear a lot before I was born again, but now I don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, I mean, um, when people might be using the glorious name of Jesus Christ as a swear word. A lot of people have done that before they were saved. And now they feel very uncomfortable when they hear the word. They can't bring themselves to, to say that, even though they said it quite liberally beforehand. And even when they hear it now, it sort of pricks them in the ribs. It, it sort of uh, pokes them in the ribs and it makes them jolt. And it's because the Holy Spirit has sensitized you more by your conscience. Right, Psalm 14, verse 1. I did quote the, the first verse um, earlier on. First, uh, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that do good. Hear that? We've heard that several times in the New Testament. This is Old Testament. There is none that do good. None. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. That's a key there. Did they seek God? <clears throat> they are gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. God's words, not mine. No, not one. It is why God has put kings and governments to subdue um, or suppress evil. Or man left alone would completely run riot. Have you ever seen on the news when perhaps in Florida they have a, a hurricane? Um, it happens um, pretty much every year, doesn't it? Um, normally in late summer, isn't it? Early autumn when the hurricane season comes. And very often and they say, oh, is this hurricane? They normally name it after a name, don't they? Uh, and this hurricane's going to hit Florida. And, uh, and they said, everyone's got to um, uh, uh, evacuate. You know, get out, get out, get out the town. And everyone goes, including the police. And of course, everybody goes, including the police. But a few hang back. And of course, when they hang back, there's no police there. And of course, what they do, they just loot the shops. They just wreck property and just loot the shops. Man is basically evil. That is why God has put in governments. He has put in governments to curtail. Or, uh, <clears throat> Romans 13.1. Romans 13.1. It speaks about, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are ordained of God. God has put in these governments in every country. Some governments are good, some, <laughs> some are not good. But he, they still suppress evil. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Not for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. If you're a Christian, you're representing Jesus Christ. And if he if you sort of people will see, people will see, well, that's supposed to be a Christian, that man or that woman, and look at them. So for every man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as, as supreme or unto governors 
as unto them that are sent by him, sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. God has put these people in place, governments, police, to punish evildoers. Basically, it is to suppress crime. To First um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, for kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. See, God is really telling you to obey the king. You might not, you might not be happy with the government, you might not be happy with the police, but, but you'll have a much more peaceful and tranquil life if you uh, obey them. God has put all those governments in power, good or bad. Even the bad ones will suppress crime. Right, if you could turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Right. Acts 17. Right, starting at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mark, Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Some translations say religious. Religious. You are too religious. For I pass by and noticed your objects of worship, obviously all the idolatry. I even found an altar with this description, to the unknown God whom you ignorantly worship. I will declare him to you. <clears throat> so this Paul is actually going to now tell them all about the, the real God. In verse 24, it continues, God that made the world and everything in it, keeps going back to that, you see, God that made the world and everything in it, since that he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood, going back to Adam and Eve, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. There you go, boundaries. Some countries don't like boundaries now, borders, do they? It's borders. Basically, you could say borders. Uh, but God says he's put these borders in place. That they, right, here we go. This is uh, quite important. Verse 27, 27, still in Acts 17, that they should seek the Lord. There we go again. They should seek the Lord in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. The Lord's saying, if you seek him, you will find him. <clears throat> Though he not being far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. We are his offspring. We are his <clears throat> Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, children of God, you could say, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead, that's in the King James language, uh, um, other translations saying the divine nature, Think that not the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, idols, these idol objects. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at it. That's in the King James. But in the other translation, it would say overlooked. In the times of this ignorance, God 
overlooked. So really, he's prepared to overlook all their idolatrous ways, all their wickedness, if able to repent. Repent, and God is prepared to overlook it. But now, but now, but now uh, he commands all men everywhere to repent, to seek him, because he has pointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And by that man who he has ordained, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. And we all obviously know who he's talking about, our Lord Jesus. So they're now saying that beforehand, beforehand all this idolatry, uh, he's prepared to overlook, just repent, turn, seek him, change your mind, seek him, <coughs> Because he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man who is ordained, and that's Jesus Christ. <clears throat> See, now the gospel is about there. Uh, we are now really commanded to believe the gospel. But there's still obviously these people who haven't heard it. We're back to the guy in, in the Brazilian jungle and the African jungle and, and the Chinaman and the Aborigine. They might not have heard of Jesus Christ. They're going to get judged by their conscience, bearing them witness and they're, they're, they, uh, the conscience will be their witness. They'll be in court and their witness will be their conscience. He said, right, repent, seek God, and, uh, and he is not far from you. So God is saying, if you seek me, you will find me. Uh, a bit like um, in the Old Testament, um, even, even um, uh, Jonah, he was sent to Nineveh. They weren't, uh, they, they weren't Israel, that was obviously Gentiles, to get them to repent of their wickedness, or else God would probably wipe the floor with them. The children of Israel and all their idolatrous ways was to do the same, repent. God would obviously speak to them sometimes in dreams uh, or in visions and things like that, but he's saying he will overlook, he will overlook it if you turn and seek him. That's the, that's the message. <clears throat> the New Testament... Uh, God says, seek God. And when people seek God, God opens their hearts. And he will move heaven and earth, literally. He will move heaven and earth to send someone. For example, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, Cornelius was, a, uh, was what you would call uh, a good man. He worshipped God. He gave money uh, alms to the poor, we would say give money to charity these days, he gave to the poor he worshipped God but he still, he needed to hear the gospel, now that Jesus Christ uh, it's obviously after the cross, well you can only be saved now by the cross <clears throat> so, that, so actually in Cornelius chapter 10 uh, God sent angels and uh, cut a long story short, he sent angels and got Peter to Cornelius to tell him the gospel. He could see that uh, Cornelius' heart was open. He was, uh, he was a, what we would call a good man uh, in the human sight. He worshipped God and he gave money to the poor, etc. And uh, similar thing in Acts 16, uh, Lydia. Uh, Lydia, she was a godly woman, but the Lord opened her heart so she could hear the message from Paul. After Paul was given a vision from God to go to her. <clears throat> in, uh, in this age, 
there have been sort of many missionaries that have gone round the world to the darkest place of Africa. Uh, they've been sent to remote places where God knows there were, they were, or are, open hearts to seek good. I mean, we know in Jeremiah, Old Testament, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you shall find him. It doesn't say you might find him if it's in a good mood or it's a sunny day. If you seek the Lord, you shall find him. <clears throat> to give them the message of Jesus, if you seek the Lord. Now, we, unfortunately now, we, we go out in the streets, as you know. We go out in the streets and um, uh, we preach the gospel uh, pretty much every week. I've been preaching it for three years. I wouldn't like to know, probably hundreds. I don't know how many times I've preached. <clears throat> it is a dark world out there. It is a dark world. And uh, you think, why can't people believe? Why can't people believe? Rather than get all this abusive language. I've had beer spat at me, words hurled at me, all, all um, sorts of swear words hurled at me. But I take it as a compliment. I take it as inspiration. It gives me encouragement. Right. It's the <laughs> Thank you, brother. It, it gives me inspiration. But we are battling against dark principalities. And, uh, and obviously, a lot of the people, Satan has got blinded. Now, just to talk on a slightly bit of a light-hearted thing, I'm sure you've seen a TV programme called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Have you heard of that? You must think, what on earth is he talking about that for? What, and has he gone off? <clears throat> I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Well, we, it's normally on the November, and of course there's nothing else on telly, and I do, I do sometimes watch it, don't we? We do sometimes watch it, shame to say. I know it's stupid, but we do sometimes watch it. Now, I'm sure you've seen Anton Deck standing there and uh, say, all you've got to do, you've got to go into that place, and you've got to get ten stars, yellow stars, and there's one in each room, and uh, you've just got to find them, and, uh, and, and that's it, and you get a meal for every one. You might think, well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I, I, mean, I, I mean, I could do that. I mean, I could do that, yeah. Yeah, no, easy peasy, no problem. He says, ah, oh, but he says, but you won't be alone in there. There will be insects, there will be scorpions, there will be snakes. And it's a bit like that now. We think it's so easy. We think, well, it's a simple gospel. It's not a complicated gospel. Uh, God wants you to believe the gospel. Go out there and tell them about Jesus Christ, how he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and everything. But we have got lots of insects, scorpions and snakes to deal with. And it's a, it's a fairly reasonable illustration of it. It looks easy and it should be easy, but there's a dark principalities there but the good thing is that Jesus says, I have given you scorpion to what? Do you know what? To tread on scorpions and snakes. Did you know that? <laughs> I have given you authority to tread on scorpions and snakes. And so, a bit like a policeman, really. A bit like a policeman. You know, you might even be a woman policeman. You might think, well, she can't stand up to those two blokes floating in the pub. Um, but she'd walk in, she'd have a badge on, she'd have a uniform on. She's got authority authority from the most high which is the king of england isn't it really and it's a bit like we have authority from the other king from our king king jesus praise god but so we know that man is going to be judged by his conscience if he hasn't heard the gospel he's going to be judged by his conscience which will bear witness and he will see nature and god and this is not my word i didn't write the book I love reading it, though. Uh, but you have no excuse, according to God. No excuse. Men or women will not get judged and perish 
for not hearing and believe the gospel. They will get judged and get condemned for their lying, stealing, blasphemies, adulteries and everything else that you can think of, basically for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, like most of the people in Clacton, and most of the people in Colchester, Ipswich, Norwich, Southend, Basildon, and we go around them. <clears throat> they know the basic laws in their hearts and their conscience bearing witness. You might say their conscience was seared. Well, it is actually seared, because when, when, when a guy pinches something, whether it's from your house or whether he's, he's uh, done a scam on the internet, um, he's got no conscience. His conscience has been seared. Um, his, uh, the Bible in, in 1 Timothy, it talks about a seared conscience in chapter, chapter 4. A seared conscience. Uh, that, that He's got no conscience that you've robbed this poor old lady of all her money on the, or some scam on the internet and he's not worried that she now can't pay her rent, he ca she can't buy food, she was in serious financial trouble. He's got no conscience whatsoever. His conscience has been seared. They, it's like an animal. <coughs> Excuse me. Like an animal. Uh, an animal hasn't got a conscience. Man has got a conscience. Now, an animal hasn't got... You might think, oh, you might, an animal has got a conscience. Well, if you had your Sunday lunch on a table and you went to um, answer the phone or something... And, or go to the loo, and you come back and your dog had eaten your Sunday lunch, you wouldn't be very happy, would you? The dog would know it's done wrong, and it would scowl off into the corner, probably with its tail between the legs, and you'd shout at it. But it wouldn't think, hang on, I've just eaten my master's food. He's now going to start. He's going to be hungry. God, the animal won't think that, but they know that they've done wrong, but they've got no conscience. And when people have had their conscience seared, they're as bad as an animal. Um, it's just like an animal government and the police can suppress their wickedness but their hearts are truly wicked you might well think what about the old lady who lives in her flat or the old man who lives in the village they haven't hurt a fly they give money to charity they're lovely people well they might be to you your eyes they might be, appear good to be good people in, from a human perspective but I bet he and she has lied, stolen, and hasn't loved God with all their heart. And they probably even tried to seek him. God says, seek me, and you'll find me. So all their, uh, all their sins uh, will, will catch up with them, and, uh, and they haven't seeked God. Haven't seeked God. <clears throat> all have, the Bible says, all have sinned and come uh, short of the glory of God. We know that's one of our messages in, 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 in preaching. All have sinned and fallen short of God, and they certainly would have come under that. <clears throat> but the good news, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's, there's uh, good news and bad news in one verse there. The wages of sin is death, wages of sin is death, <clears throat> but the gift of God is is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Praise God. <clears throat> Basically, good people do not go to heaven, uh, but forgiven people do who have come to know the, the gospel, have believed Jesus Christ, and have put their faith in him as their saviour. <clears throat> but we do preach, as I said, we do preach, uh, but there's an enemy there 
trying to blind people, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. Satan blinds people, but it's through prayer. We, can, we use our authority in Christ that um, uh, we can lift those blinds and, and they can hear and see the gospel, to see the light of Jesus Christ. For those who have heard the gospel, they have, for those who haven't heard the gospel, they have no excuse. And for those who have heard the gospel and not sought God, they're even worse. <clears throat> so anyway, so, but we know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that hopefully most of us here um, have put their faith in Jesus Christ and he promises you eternal life. And when Jesus saves you, he says, you are now going to be a child of God. You was a child of wrath, but you're now a child of God. Praise God. <clears throat> and we're just going to thank God now for all he has done for us, making us children of God. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We give you thanks. We can see quite clearly in your word, Father, how you just want people to come and seek you, to seek you, and, they, and you say you will find them. They're in their mist. Jesus says, repent. Repentance is near. My, in the mist. Salvation is in the mist. So we just pray, Father. We pray for this uh, town of Clacton. We pray for all the towns that we visit, that all the people, that seeds have been sown. Your word has been sown in their hearts, been watered. So you can make them grow, Father. We thank you here for this, uh, for your words, Father, where we can see that you just want people to come to Jesus. They have no excuse. But we're our, we will continue to preach your word, Father, to go into the streets as your ambassadors. He says, go out there and tell people that God is no longer reconciling their sins against them, no longer taking their sins against them, imputing their sins against them. So we give you thanks, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for making us children of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God.